Welcome to episode 45 of Super Entertainment Presents, the television crossover universe on the Grand Canal Network, coming to you live from Castle Wolfenstein, hosted by the TVCU crew. The TVCU crew are a team of crossovers who devote way too much of their time to connecting the dots through official crossovers and Easter eggs, all in order to demonstrate a shared fictional reality we call the television crossover universe. And I am here with my special co-host. Excuse you. What word would you like applied to I was yourself? actually wondering what word you were about to apply to me. I, I'm not going to give myself an adjective. Hi, guys. Um, the Squamos, Mary Helen Norris. Really? We're not, we'll work on it for next Aldrich. time. We promise. Sorceress. I will throw an Oreo at you right now. Well, we're here welcoming you to another hour of crossovers and discussion with some of the finest authors around. Now, before we move into our discussion with Peter Rollick, do we have any plugs this week? Shameless or otherwise? They're always just pure shameless. I'm just going to plug. Let's also keep in mind, uh, when this airs, versus when we're recording, when this airs, we're actually probably going to be getting close to your next Science of Deduction release. Yes, we will. So, there's you a plug. Yay! Check our website to see what Sherlock Holmes is up to this time. Yeah, it's actually been fun seeing and getting to hear like what Sherlock's up to month to month. Um, I was in July, and it's going to be fun when we hit December and they all come together. But also, I'm going to sit here and plug as we're officially in the fall TV season. Hallelujah. I'm going to go ahead and plug the Time, time Travel, travel Bomb. Nexus. Really? That actually has already aired its run. Hallelujah. And I made it all of like 2.5 seconds into that sucker. I was like, nope. But that already actually aired over the summer, it turns out, because I went to look it up when I was doing my review and my preview. Yeah, it's already aired, so, yeah. But I'm going to actually um, plug the timetravelnexus.com um, because fall TV's coming. We got the Arrowverse. We've also got Frequency also on the CW, uh, Timeless on NBC. Uh, Fox is going to have a show after the midseason break. Of course, you know, as soon as I have... Word on anything and everything Doctor Who, I will give it to you guys. Um, there's literally 17 or so time travel-related shows that are either coming out here in the fall or in the spring. And it's getting kind of tricky to keep track of all of them. But I'm going to do my best over at TimeTravelNexus.com. Nerd. Absolute nerd. I mean, they... Oh! Oh! Before we go to break, actually, this occurred to me in right between the shows. There is another reason for me to think they might extend the Flashpoint Paradox, going off of last week's discussion. The discussion will never escape. It will never escape. But I'm going to at least do this before we actually bring in the guest. Um, but, and gosh, his name slipped my mind just now. But Peter Rollick. Not Peter Rollick. Not our guest. But the reason why I think they might go longer, because I want to call him Draco Malfoy, but that's his name in Harry Potter. But that actor's coming over and going to be in Flash, and it's been a huge deal. And will they make this big a deal for like four episodes or are they going to magically find a way to make him work I mean he's kind of a big enough name that they might not have the budget to keep going with him this is true but there's my argument they might keep him for longer so then they have to extend the paradox we'll see we'll see all right and now after all of that let's cut to the break and then we'll be back with every horror from the Necronomicon and Peter Rollick too and we're back Tonight, we're with one of our favorite returning guests, Peter Rollick, the award-winning author who has done some very well-received novels you can pick up in most Barnes & Noble. And in fact, even people I know who aren't generally horror or the Lovecraft fans know of him, the one and only Peter Rollick, here to discuss his new novel, Reanimatrix, third in the Reanimator series. Welcome back. 
Hi, James. How are you? I'm great. I am wired. I You're have, wired? like, three giant bags of tea in my mug, so... See, at least I cut it down to two. Uh, yeah. Now. Sometimes it's, there's there's those days where I need, like, five cups of coffee just to get to noon. Oh, my oh, goodness. Yeah. yeah, no, that's usually me Monday morning. So, let's start off with UMH. You had Hi. some unique questions. Yes, I, I'm going to be your unorthodox question asker today, um, and you'll, you'll learn why very quickly. Okay. Um, because I'm actually not really knowledgeable at all about Lovecraft. So that's actually my question. I'm going to lead off with this. Um, I'm going to go talk about your Amazon bio because I went when James told me you were on. I was like, all right, I need to learn about more about him. So I went on your Amazon bio and you talk about how when you picked the pen back up and one of the first things you did was this Lovecraftian mashup novel. So why that and why Lovecraft? What's Well, so the first question is why Lovecraft? Um, yeah. First of all, you have to understand there was a lot of abuse in my family, um, but most of it was literary in nature. Um, my father used to read me The Rats in the Wall as a bedtime story. Oh, wow. When I was five or six. Yeah, he would come into the bedroom with the with the big book of um, modern library edition of, of modern horror, and he would pick either The Dunwich Horror or Rats in the Wall as a bedtime story. So... Huh. You know, that just sets the stage, right? Um, and you know, we would go to this little place outside Philadelphia called the Book Swap almost once a month. And I would oh yeah, scouting. I know that place. You know that place, so you know. It's, yeah, you know, I'm it's from Philadelphia. Place. Yeah, it's it's gone now, but um, yeah, it was like the biggest bookstore you could go to to find whatever you wanted. And I used to scour those shelves for Lovecraftian literature. And I started collecting Lovecraft probably when I was about eight years old. Okay. So, and and it expanded beyond Lovecraft to, you know, you pick up a Brian Lumley novel or a Ramsey Campbell, Robert Block, and it's like all of a sudden you realize that there is like this huge crossover universe going on that you don't know about. It's sort of like the literary equivalent of the Universal Monster movies. And so... Yeah, I, I had over the years collected a huge library of Lovecraftiana, um, probably a couple thousand volumes, um, and I'd, I'd written some stuff in college, and I published one story here or there, and you know I had I hit a sophomore slump and couldn't get anything else published, so okay. I decided not to publish any, not to write any more stories. I decided that I would take a tact. There was a, a small chapbook had come out called uh, Ex Libris Miskatonisi. And it was about the history of the Miskatonic University Library and all its holdings. So it was sort of like this pseudo factual thing. It's like, oh man, I could do that. I've got all the books. So I, for like a year, I did nothing but read and take notes on Lovecraftian timelines. Um, and in doing so, I realized that there were three characters that were all in Arkham about the same time. Randolph Carter, as in his Zakalba manifestation. Um, Ephraim Waite, as Asneth. And the unnamed narrator from uh, Shadow of Rinsmith, who we all call now Robert Olmstead. Um 
I had that timeline all worked out. I was like, oh, this is really cool. They're all like in the same town at the same time. Wouldn't be really neat if they met. And you know, I just been like reading um, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and uh, Kim Newman's uh, vampire crossover novels. And I was like, yeah, you know what? Let's take a shot at this. So I wrote the weird. Co- I start writing the weird company, and. I got to a point where I wanted a few more characters in the team and I realized that I really wanted a reanimator in the book and I couldn't use Herbert West because his timeline was just really off on this. Yeah. So I needed another character. And, uh, so I invented, I stole Dr. Hartwell from, uh, the Dunwich horror. And stole's a rough word. Borrowed without asking works just as well. Well, you know, Okay, I will follow dead authors down uh, dark alleyways and beat them to a pulp. <laughs> if you're not doing anything with it, I will. That's a quote for the cover of your next book. <laughs> so, yeah, so um, I borrowed Dr. Hartwell from the Dunwich Horror um, and just gave him this whole backstory. And because I really wanted to understand what his motivations were to be a reanimator. Herbert West is easy. It's established. Hartwell, well, how do you get him to be like West? And not just, yeah. So, yeah. Reading that, it was surprising how well you managed to do all of that and make it feel like this is just an expansion on something Lovecraft himself did. I think it's one of the most masterful parts of that first book. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Um, Reanimators and reanimators grew out of that. I only expected to write one or two stories about Hartwell, and then get him to where I needed to be. But then I couldn't get him off the page. And there's even a point in reanimators where Hartwell just takes his back seat to Peasley, and Peasley takes over. And I literally had to like sit down and I, I sat down once and I said, you know what? This book is going in the wrong direction. Peasley has to die. And I plot that out in the book. Hartwell plots Peasley's death. And then all of a sudden I remembered, oh, wait, he does. You know, <laughs> the monster that's that's uh, Professor Peasley does go away. I don't have this problem. <laughs> it's already taken care of for me. But the, the characters were just so strong. They, they kind of took over the page and had to fight it out amongst themselves. Yeah, they do. You really do well with expanding Lovecraft's thin characterization, but making it feel natural, which I think is one of the series' really strong points. Yeah. I I think that a a big mistake that everybody makes is that they forget that characters, even villains, are people, and they have motivations. Um, And I think I I do that really well with, with... uh, Hartwell, because people people call come to me and they say, "Oh, I love Hartwell or I hate him. He's such a whiny pussy, right?" Yeah, well, he is. That's the point. He is stuck trying to, to be a nice guy and be a real a research scientist and solving this problem of death, but at the same time wanting to gain revenge on the person people that killed his parents. Um, and he waffles between that 
that it's those interesting people. hearing that because now that you've said it, I can see it, but that never occurred to me because I listened to the audiobook and the way uh, the narrator reads it, he doesn't come off as whiny. So right. That's interesting. But but he's sort of sort of stuck in this limbo of hey, this is a really great ability I have. I've got I've gotten all, I've done all the science, but the only motivation for the science was to really get revenge on Herbert West. Yeah. And how do you resolve that? So going back to MH's question, this is how I got to where we are. This is why Lovecraft, and this is why I decided to do this kind of mashup of his works. All right. You actually started dancing around another question I had for you. Um, because Lovecrafting horror is, it's even for me, who I tend to stay away from the horror genre, I even know what Lovecrafting horror is, um, even though I haven't had a lot of exposure to it. In fact, I think this is the first book based off Lovecraft horror I've picked up um, and read. But uh, any advice for writers who want to write Lovecrafting horror? I know James is a huge fan of it, and I'm sure he's gotten some special submissions at times. So advice for writers who want to write Lovecraftian horror. Yes, please save us from bad Lovecraftian horror submissions. Wow. Save us all. Uh, you know, I don't know how how to do that. Um, <laughs> you know, there's, there's these old standbys, like write what you know and, and, and all, all that kind of stuff. And that's true. But the problem is that very few of us actually experience some real horror in our lives. We are really well isolated, and, and we don't think a lot about this, these sort of existential horrors anymore. And this is really an existential horror universe. Uh, the fact that you know the universe is not only not anthropocentric, but anti-anthropocentric, that it will eat you, and it doesn't care if you're having fun. Um isn't part of our daily lives. And we don't think about much, that much. And it's actually one of the reasons I've kind of stayed away from the cosmic horror as a central part of my novels. It lurks on the background, but it's not a central part of the story. Um, but to answer your question, how do you have advice for Lovecraftian writers? First of all, know the field. Read what everybody else is doing. Uh, and then read what everybody else is talking about and what the mistakes are. I have read some great Lovecraftian stories. I've read some really bad ones. And it's often hard to tell the difference until you sit down and, and go back and say, well, why did I really like that? And why? And then, or why did I really hate that? And you go back and you look at it and it's like, oh yeah, this, I mean, I read a really, really good story the other day, and I thought it was really well made. I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell you what it is. Um, Aww. No, because there's this, there's this whole singular premise about when the story is written, and the the setting of the story takes place about a thousand years before the Necronomicon is written. Okay. And the characters are constantly consulting the Necronomicon. Huh. So, great story. Yeah, that's an issue. Yeah. So, you know, for me, if you, one of the things that I do is, is timelines. I do these timelines and I make sure things are right. And yes, I'll fudge dates and, and years a little bit. 
Well, that's different than smashing your own timeline. Flash! Anyways. Yes. Yes. I mean, um, you did have Gatsby show up, and I mean, what's the difference if he shows up in the 1850s? Maybe yeah. he can be pals with Charles Dickens. Not a big I'm issue. i cool that, actually. Right. Yes, you know, I, I did yeah. like... I did bring in Gatsby, and the timeline on that is right. The place is, is right. And I kind of... I just kind of like doing research on all the horror that is set on Long Island. There's yeah, it's just great. Yeah. Kind of weird that there's a lot of horror movies set and, and horror novels set on Long Island. I think that's our cue to just burn it, raise it, and abandon it. Well, yeah. Something's wrong there. Yes. Yes. Okay, moving into Reanimatrix itself. Um, before I ask my questions, would you like to give our listeners a summary and your best pitch for why they should go and buy it as soon as Amazon restocks? And bonus points if you can include in the pitch why someone that's not a fan of Lovecrafting Horror should pick it up. Okay, so. Yes. It is restocked on Amazon right now. Okay. It's, it's in stock and shipping. So there's that. Second, Reanimatrix is my homage not just to Lovecraft movies but to film noir I am not a fan not just a fan of Lovecraft and horror movies I'm also a fan of film noir so Reanimatrix is actually inspired by a film called Laura which um, was an auto premature film uh, starring Gene Turney and Dana Andrews along with Clifton Webb Vincent Price and Judith Anderson it came out in 1944 and it is about a cop who picks up a murder of a very beautiful woman whose face has been blown off. And just like in Reanimatrix, um, he falls in love with her, or the memory of her. He moves into her house and starts reading her diaries and going through her stuff and learning about her life and really just falls in love with her. Um, This is also kind of the inspiration for Twin Peaks, Yes. Uh, so, and the book has a very Twin Peaks feel about it. Um, there's uh, a kind of Thin Man uh, feel about the book that I, I really worked for. There's echoes of the Big Sleep in there. Um, but I've also sort of tried to meld around this whole background of this film noir all the movies and monsters and, and both classic and new that I've really, really loved. Um, there are good references to uh, Dr. X, but also Banshee Chapter, which I think is an underrated movie. Um, there's echoes of Kolchak, the Night Stalker, and Blade Runner, um, White Zombie. I even, yes. <laughs> I even sneak in the Goonies. Um this is beautiful. A- I loved that. <laughs> I had to call my dad and tell him that one. <laughs> this is a big, fun book. It's scary. I hope. I hope it's scary. Um, it's fun. It's it's a throwback to that film noir. It's also a bit racy. Um, it's a little bit stronger than say true the first season of True Detective but not quite uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. I wasn't going for that. I don't think the there is some adult content. Um, 
as as my friends like to put it, fish porn. Um, so you're saying that this is the next thing that all of the bored housewives are going to get hot on? Uh, you know, I don't really care. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, I had some fun. Um, the there is a uh, there is a sexual subtext, an erotic subtext to the book that is very important. It's core to uh, Megan Halsey's uh, character. And almost all of that is told from her point of view. Okay. Um, it's And it's in very big contrast to uh, Peasley's sexuality, which takes the stage, but he's much more conservative about it. You know what's happening, but we don't. he doesn't talk about it. Um, and I, I, I worked very hard to get those two characters to have different ideas about that okay. and express that on the page. So it's a, it's a sexy, noir, horror thriller. There you go. Okay. So one of my favorite concepts from early on in the book was the, I'm going to probably butcher the pronunciation because for some reason this is a word I am physically incapable of saying right, but the sepia prints. Yes, the sepia prints. So please tell us more about that, where it came from. This is the first time anything really excited me about the king in yellow for a long time. Yeah, the, the, well, first of all, that whole first chapter, well, that's it's just actually the second chapter, um, the, the sepia prints, is really um, inspired by that first season of True Detective. That was the, the mood I was going for with that. I thought and, so. Yeah, um... And it's just basically the idea that there are other characters and lesser characters in the King and Yellow mythos. And some of them might be more horrible than the king himself. Yes. So, yeah, and I like the idea of the, the, the Sapia Prince um, and the... the, the um, the play on words works well for me. I liked it. And I sort of had, I've done stories set around the Paris Opera House before in Reanimators. So I thought yes. it would be good to take, take something else back there. Um, it'd be very, I'm kind of interested in going back and doing research and seeing who else besides the Phantom of the Opera and Rick Lay and a few other people I know have set all their horror stories at, at this this um, this opera house because it seems to be massively huge. Yes, and really open to uh, as a, a place setting for uh, terrible things to happen. I think it's begging for you to edit a new Lovecraftian anthology around this theme or setting. Okay. I can see that. Sure. But yeah, like um, to- when I, I saw the bit about the Paris, I was like, hold up. Because the first thing came to mind was Phantom of the Opera, and that's one of my favorite musicals. And I was like, yes. So right. I, I did find it a connection to something I knew, to, to something... As, you should definitely read the first book in the series, which has yeah, an he, even larger connection. He didn't tell me this was the third book in the, the series when he threw it at me, and I was like, so I just all of a sudden was like, hold up. Did you just hand me the third book in a series? 
Yes. So let's make Lost Mary Helen even more lost. Thank you, James. It's part well, of the fun. It's the third book I've written, but it falls in between Reanimators and The Weird Company. And it stands on its own. There, Yes, Hartwell shows up in it. Um, and it helps if you knew him from Reanimators. But there's actually very little crossover with The Weird Company or, or Reanimators itself. Okay. So, and I've started, I've plotted out two sequels to Reanimatrix, and I'm really excited about them. And they're going to fall in between uh, Reanimatrix and The Weird Company. So, okay. yes. Hopefully, everything will. I don't know that it's a series uh, as more of a, a selection of related novels. Okay. Okay, so since you're still playing around in the pre-World War II era, how long do we have to wait for the A-Team versus Lovecraftian horror novel I know you're dying to write? Oh, yes. I have... um, Actually, it's plotted. And the problem I'm having is that I really... If if I want to write that book, I have to finish the two novels that get... Megan and Robert to that position. Okay. So if if, if for, to fill everybody else in, um, I Please. think it it was a couple years ago. Somebody suggested that I I create this whole other team of of Lovecraftian superheroes to to work against the Weird Company. And I sort of threw out some names, and I like those names, and I've sort of developed those characters. Um. But I haven't written about them yet. They're still gelling. Um, okay. But yes, there will be a weird company crossover with another team. Um, the other problem with that is that there's actually a very short window to do that in. After the events of uh, Weird Company, uh, yeah. Ra- Ra- Randolph Carter goes to uh, Louisiana and he disappears. Asnith Waite's going to have her own problems. The, the window is short, maybe weeks to days, weeks to months, rather. So it would have to be almost an immediate sequel to The Weird Company. Um, and if I'm going to do that, I have to, to lay the stage. Uh, but I've cut, I've done so many loose ends um, in Reanimatrix that I want to clear those up before I move forward. Yes. So, do you want to ask one of your other questions? Um, I was going to just look. I know you had some craft questions about Reanimatrix. Yeah. Before I, I move on to ask him some other questions about what he has going on. All right. Um, well, because when I was reading Reanimatrix, I asked James, I'm like, I was like, uh, when I was starting the book, and I noticed it's all letters or it's journal entries. And I was like, this is all this? And he's like, his other book was, yes. And I was. And I found that to be a very interesting and kind of unique style. Most people tend to stick with prose. So I thought it was fun and a different way of telling a story to go with letters and journal entries. And what do you do telling a story that way versus, like, prose? But does that make well, sense? Yes. Yeah. So there's this thing I have a problem with. Is I, I kind of hate the the whole, what, what I call a, what's the motivation to tell the story? Why is this story being told? 
you for me i have to know why someone is sitting down and telling me the most horrible things that they've done and that have happened to them okay so the cons- you know and i also don't like the 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 conceit of what this this thing that happens so and then after you you listen to somebody tell the whole story of of what they've done and how this horrible monster came after them and then they said and then i died Oh, that annoys me so much. I hate it when they don't, when there's a first person narrative and then the person supposedly writing it dies. Right. So I, I hate that. So, because it sort of breaks these rules. Yeah, you don't know these. There's stories like this, MH. There are stories that do this. That, that doesn't I'm not make sure sense. how you've missed out on reading these. Because I don't do horror. It's in mystery, too. I've read more than a few mystery novels that I'd end like, with the detective, the first-person detective actually, biting Actually, I can't say much, because I think one of the ones I'm putting into all the petty myths that anthology does do that. Shame on you. But it was real important. Yes. So, you know, one of the... the what happens in um, reanimators is that these are journal entries, or, you know, it, it's a story this guy is telling, um, because he wants to release his burden and explain how he got where he is um i didn't want to do that in reanimatrix but i still wanted to have sort of a motivation to tell the story and this sort of diary entry of robert you know keeping his own files on his own cases and then megan keeping a diary trying to figure out where her mother is um, and documenting everything. Uh, I was going to have to build those conceits into the book so that Robert would have something to look at to tell her story. And it just sort of took over. Okay. Um, because it works. It's really nice. And then at the end, there's a surprise ending of actually who's put all those papers together and who's, who's you know letting you see all this stuff. Oh, yes. Um, because you just can't you got to figure out how, how not only why is this person telling the story but how did you get involved in this and i really don't like stories that don't tell you why this is being told yeah and i also want to jump in with something that you do with your style that i think works really well you gloss over the horrible monsters you give just enough for the reader's mind to do the work instead of I'm writing about this horrible experience and I'm going to say all of the horrible things I saw in exact detail, exact gory detail, which Uh people really wouldn't do if they're writing what happened to them. Right. And and that is, that is another thing I consciously work to, to try and, and not do. A lot of this stuff is, is taking place. Well, particularly in reanimators, it was a guy writing a story from 25 years ago. His de- memory of details is going to be very limited. Very true. Um, the same same thing, even with detectives and uh, Megan's uh, memoirs. There's going to be things that are going to be important to be important to them. The fact that there was the ichor drinking off of uh, some monster's teeth is green and yellow and and verdant is not going to be that important when they're putting things down. No. Um, I do have stories that are like that, and I do where I take detail into descriptions, but not for first-person narratives. 
Yeah. Okay. It just really rarely ever works well. Like, honestly, everything with the final reveal and the sepia prints would not be half as striking if you took five or six paragraphs to describe the set dressing and how yes. it works. Yeah. Because actually, the set dressing is, is oh, I want to leave that open to everybody's imagination about, I, I just want to give some hints about what he's seeing in the dark and what he remembers. But I don't want to go into detail. Yes. So, yeah. One of my, okay, now to move into the series as a whole, one of my favorite continuing things in this series is the way you use some very famous Depression-era detectives. Would you please talk about them and how they function? They're great. <laughs> okay. So if you haven't noticed, if you've been reading the books, I – well, so this goes back to, once again, uh, being in Philadelphia. Um, I was an insomniac, and I used to turn on the TV around 11 o'clock at night. I had this little black and white plastic TV that sat by the side of my bed. I would put on the UHF channels, 17, 29, and 48. And they would show. Oh man, that brings back memory of 17, 29, 48. Yeah. And they would show old movies. And I would fall asleep watching Charlie Chan, Nick and Nora Charles, um, Mr. Moto, Mr. Wong. Yes. I absolutely love these characters. And. Um, there's an ongoing kind of romance um, that I hope I've caught in with Robert and Megan of Nick and Nora from The Thin Man. Um, I think so. I love these movies. Um, I've, I've watched them probably once every six months. Um, you know, straight through. Uh, all of them at oh, yes. Life. And I've used the characters over and over again, um, and I try. I've tried to develop them. Um, I've even there's a, a a short story I wrote set on a boat going uh, from Hawaii to someplace. Oh, I which, wasn't aware of this. Yeah, in which Charlie Chan, Mister Moto, Mister Wong, and, and Nora Char- Nora Charles are on the boat. Uh, and talking and um, really discussing the, what's happening in the world uh, and what's about to happen with uh, you know Germany and the invasion of Poland. And uh, okay, what is this title and where was it published? Because it published I'm going in, to buy it as soon as we're done. <laughs> it's it's the story's called uh, "Before the War: Five Dragons Roar." Okay, and. It's in one of the Tales of the Shadow Men volumes. Um, okay. And if you don't know these books... Um, oh, I do. I love them. But please, inform our listeners. Yeah. There's, every year, uh, Jean-Marc and Randy Lafissier put together a collection of crossover stories featuring characters from French literature, film, comics, whatever, as long as it's related to, to, to French literature um they'll, they'll he'll they, it's it's valid so my the short story i wrote uh based on the phantom of the opera uh was which appeared in reanimators first appeared in these books um in fact the sepia prince first appeared in one of these books 
Um, so yeah, it's it's kind of a fun little uh, annual anthology. Uh, Rick Lay uh, or puts a lot of work into that. Kim Newman's been in there. I think Michael Moorcock. Um, just yeah, a lot lots of, of big name authors. Yeah, and it's it's really one of the first places I sort of started writing on a regular basis. I missed out two year these last two years because I've been a little busy with Reanimatrix and a few other projects. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm going to get back on that horse soon. Yeah, I'm a few years behind buying them, so that's probably why I missed your story. Yeah. So, like, I missed a couple random volumes, so I definitely need to finally start catching up and get the ones that I accidentally skipped. Get on it. I will. I will. But, oh, see, now you broke my train of thought. I don't remember what I was going to ask. You did it to me last episode, so it was totally my turn. Okay. Okay, but would you like... Okay, you also have a few anthologies out now. Would you like to quickly pitch them and tell us what they're all about as we start to close in on the end? Uh, let's see. Um, so out of the love... A couple of years ago, I, I made the mistake of saying, hey, you know what? This, the huge anniversary of the movie Reanimator is coming up. Somebody should do a tribute anthology. So I did that. Is the same um, by somebody you mean you? <laughs> yeah. No, it's like, and they're done that. I said that on Facebook, and like within eight minutes, people were like, "I'm in. I want to write a story. This, that, and other." And a publisher just came up and said, "Yes, we'll do that." Oh yes, so that resulted in Legacy of the Reanimator uh, from Chaosium, which I think is a. So really that's good- how you pronounce it. I've never actually heard someone say it out loud before, despite owning like everything more books of theirs. Should, more books of theirs than my paycheck allows. Yeah. So, so okay, that's how you pronounce it. Here's the crazy thing is that I can remember being a teenager and buying the first Chaosium books and going, God, I love this stuff. And now I wrote one of them. Yeah. I, well, I edited that's... one of them with, with Brian Sammons. So, yeah, that, that's, that's great to me. Um, so there's, there's that. Uh, that's the only anthology I've edited. Okay, I was sure you had a second one? No. Or am I going crazy? You're going you crazy. Are. Absolutely okay. insane. I mean, after all, you edit my stuff. Well, so I did read The King in Yellow, so goes yeah. to the territory. Yeah. Anything else you would like to shamelessly plug or have our readers buy every last copy of? <laughs> so Dark Regions Press just finished up a great kick, uh, Indiegogo. Sorry. for um, difference. Yeah, close enough for government work. Um, <laughs> for uh, three new books, two of which, three anthologies, two of which I'm in. Uh, Return of the Old Ones, which are which is edited by Brian Sammons. Um, and it's a collection of uh, Lovecraftian stories set before, during, and after the Lovecraftian apocalypse. Okay. So there's a section of stories set before the Lovecraftian apocalypse, during the Lovecraftian Apocalypse and after the Lovecraftian Apocalypse. Um, an interesting take on that. And I, I've got a story in there called Time Flies about about the Yith. Um, the other anthology is uh, The Children of Glaki. And it's a tribute uh, volume to Ramsey Campbell. Okay. And I think it contains the most disturbing story I've ever written. Um, 
It is about a book collector who uh, is offered the opportunity to, to, to find and collect the, all the books he's ever wanted. Huh. Just how far would you go to do that? Now I'm really curious. You're doing your job. Yes. <laughs> well, you asked him to do it. So I did. Know. So, yeah. Huh. Um, and uh, so, yeah, if you were given the opportunity to collect, say, a Randolph Carter inscribed book, what would you do to get it? Yeah. Okay. I'm excited for this one. What would you not do? How far would you go? I would go about half as far as I would go for a Klondike bar. <laughs> Why did I know an answer of that fashion was coming out of your mouth? You know me too well. I knew something smart, and I wasn't sure exactly what was about to come out of your mouth. So, and it's H, a curse. I have a question for you. All right. Is I had to do a lot of writing in a female mindset. Okay. And I went. I need to know. Did I pull it off? I feel like you did really well. Um, I enjoyed it. Um, also, I've been surprised at how often like male writers can pull off the female. But then again, I say kudos to you because I'm sitting here in the box where I tend to write female female characters. Even though I thought about trying it once just to do it. That's um, like the time I said, let me write a story and just murder one person just to do it. Yeah, I've real from all the stories I've read and all of the bad submissions I've read. I feel like more men can do a good female voice, but when it's bad, it's unbearable. Yeah. But so if I didn't like throw the book against the wall, well, partially because I was reading it on my phone, but the other part and more women struggle with it, but when they get it right, I think they get it more right. It's it's. I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah, it, it, I, it, I had to do... I read a lot of female erotica to get prepared for that book. All and right. It, you know, it's, it, and it's, it's very... I find it very interesting because women write a little different about that subject than men. Um, and what's important to them and what they focus on seems to be very, very different. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, that is a good way to get at the very base of it. Yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, you did you did it well. Um, so kudos. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, just you know, I'm. This is going to be the question I'm going to ask a lot of, of women because, you know, I don't want to be accused of appropriating you know that sort of thing. Yeah, I didn't see any problems. Like I, I read so many bad submissions where some guy's trying to write a woman and fails. Uh, yeah, I've memorably done it. when I was helping Nicole Petit with the speakeasies and spiritualist submissions. Oh no, I haven't heard the story. No. One author tried desperately to describe a woman's boobs, and it was the most awkward, horrible description. Especially since it was from a female perspective. And oh. wow! Oh gosh. Like a pair oh, of I did not hear biscotti. the story. Say that again, Pete. They hung there like a pair of broken biscotti. That would have been an improvement. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So you helped with the speakeasies and spiritualist book? Uh, yeah. I help her with the subs because we get so many of them that we usually split them down the middle. Okay. So I submitted. Yep. And you got accepted. Yeah. That was fun. 
Um, that's like the, one of the very few stories that I've written that are set in Florida. Ooh. Yeah, you should do more. You should bring some of that horror out of Rhode Island and into sunny Florida. Yeah, I've got a couple. Um, Man, we're having a lineup for that, aren't we? I've got a couple stories that I've written that are set in Florida. Um, I When I wrote that piece for Speakeasies and Spiritualists, it, I plotted out a continuation of that story. Um, and I like it. It just smacks a lot of yellow brick road. And I, I want to put some distance between it and me for a while. Yeah, I really like having a story that's such a constrained place instead of a lot of long, roving stories. So I think that works really well, and it's part of why she was excited to have it, because a lot of her other stories take place in many different locations. So it's great to have a constrained, tight, tense bottle story. Nice. Okay. Oh, before we cut and wrap this up, where can people find you on the interwebs? We always ask, and James was about to forget, and I could see him doing it. No, that was about what I was going to ask. Mm-hmm. I beat you to it. Okay, so really, um, the best place to find me is on Facebook. Okay. Um, I have a. I don't have an author's page. I have a friend's page. Um, that's it. Uh, I don't. I, there is a, a website maintained. Uh, that links directly to Amazon. Um, I don't do a lot of, of, of work on the web page. Um, I it's weird. Uh, I don't do a lot of internet presence except via social media. Okay. All right. And maybe someday I'll, that'll change. Um, but yeah, as long as you're not you know, a creeper or you know some lunatic um, brought me a Facebook line. I mean, he, he accepted both of us. I mean, that leaves the door wide open, people. <laughs> yeah. Um, actually, the funny thing is, is um, I guess yesterday was Friday, right? Yeah. Um, yes. I blocked my first person. Oh, wow. Yeah. So if you're comfortable telling the story, what was blockable? Um, yeah, it just... It was a, I, I accepted a friend request and I almost immediately got a, a, a message saying, "Hey, how are you?" And I, I sent back, you know, I'm rush, rushing home to 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 try to beat the rain home, and I was like, "Yeah, are you good today? God has been good uh, to me today." Right. And, one of, you know, oh, you got oh, one of those. That kind of catfishing. <laughs> You're just really lonely, and this is not what I need. Um, you know, I, I will have Facebook conversations with people I don't know, but oh, it, it just felt creepy and wrong. And, yeah. And you know that it just—I I immediately got that queasy feeling. I was like, yeah, this—I don't really want to explore this. It might be safe and whatever, but. I don't have the time to do that. So, yeah. But don't worry, that will end up in a story. Good, it needs to. And that's where all the best stuff ends up. Love crafty and Facebook chats. Yeah. Crafty and Facebook, I was going to say. But I guess that's the flip side. You do love crafty and Facebook chats and not just murder them. But, because <laughs> I just need more fodder. All right, any final points you want to touch on that we might have missed? Um, 
No, you know, October is a big month for me. I got the the novel comes out, Reanimatrix. Um, I got the cover for the Lovecraft Easy. Okay. And this uh, next weekend, I'll be at the HP Lovecraft Film Festival. And every year, the film festival publishes like this little chapbook, a little hardcover chapbook of a round robin. And I didn't contribute to the round robin, but I sent them this single standalone story called The Resignation of Abraham Pierce. And so for the first time, what they've done is they've done the old flip book. Oh, that's great. Pick up the book, and one side is the, the round robin, and you flip it over. And it's my short story. Huh. I got great cover art by Nick Gucker. And it okay. looks like an old Ballantine uh, paperback with the faces uh, that love, that they did for Lovecraft's collections. Oh, and, that's and, really fun. Yeah, I'll send you a link. It, it looks really cool. Yeah, we use that. If you want, we can use that along with Reanimatrix in the hey, check out this podcast post. Sure. Okay. Well, it's always a pleasure to have you, and we need to have you on, as always, next time you have a book or anthology or anything out. Well, anytime, I, I'd love to do that, but anytime you guys you know, are, have dead air or dead time, I'd be glad to sit down and just chat about anything. That sounds fun. I would honestly love to have an episode talking about classic detectives. Ooh, yeah. that'd be fun. Uh, it is amazing to me how many how, how many classic detectives have just gone unnoticed. And yeah, there's some great series and great films out there that we've just forgotten about. Yeah, I agree entirely. Let's definitely do that. We can talk scheduling and other stuff after the show or in sure. chat, probably in chat. Chat. But, Let's chat because I got to get some dinner. Yes, <laughs> and we've got to cut to break. But yes. thanks for talking with us. Thank you, guys. That's all there is. There isn't any more. Join us next week when we talk to Nicholas Pern of Comics Reflections about crossover comic books. Now, would you like to tell who sponsored this episode? Yes, before we go, we'd like to thank our sponsor, the Paris Opera House. Make sure next time you need to enjoy an evening of theater, you visit a place where anything can happen. Yes. Special thanks to Robert E. Ronsky Jr. for starting us on this journey, as well as Tiny White and the Deadites for our show's theme, Keep on a Stream. Please all listen. You make this possible. Please remember to subscribe and rate our show on iTunes. It keeps us going and makes a difference. And as always, everything happens somewhere. Good night. Yeah.